Quick disclaimer at the top of the episode here. The views, opinions, and information expressed during the episode are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the San Diego District Attorney's Office. All right, enjoy. In this episode of Profiles, we are joined by Abigail Shally Dillon, who is a prosecutor at the San Diego County District Attorney Office. She got an undergraduate degree in English from UC Berkeley, and she got her law degree from the University of San Diego. She's been all over the board in terms of um, defending the rights of people who have been wronged. And we are looking forward to get into that, Abigail. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Abby, we're stoked you're here. So thanks. All right, let me talk a little bit about what we're drinking first. So put all your stories on pause because this is going to take a minute. <laughs> so this drink is called a Ramos Gin Fizz. It looks like a milkshake. It does indeed, and it tastes a little bit like a milkshake to me too. I'm not <laughs> going to lie. Um, it does in fact have heavy cream in it, which is part of the reason why. So Ooh. this drink came out of New Orleans in the late 1800s. So there's a guy named Henry Ramos. I think he was a doctor, unclear on that. But in 1888, he owned a bar in New Orleans and he served, like this was kind of their signature drink and it became named after him. And uh, it was so popular that they would have 20 bartenders, the legend is, of course, they would have 20 bartenders a time working there and they would do relays of shaking it because <laughs> this drink is supposed to take 10 minutes of shaking. <laughs> you guys, I'm already sweating. You guys saw me, you know, shaking for all Quite of, a like, workout. two minutes per drink, maybe, right? And it's a lot, but this is, uh, this is really tasty. Um, and uh, funnily enough, Henry Ramos, the recipe was almost lost. He didn't give it until his deathbed in 1928 because he was a teetotaler, even though he owned a bar. Which makes no sense, but that's twist. okay. Yeah, it's a very, very weird twist. Um, but uh, yeah, he interesting dude, and um, yeah, he gave it on his deathbed in 1928. And then during the cocktail revival, people kind of of like the aughts, people kind of re- recaptured this. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's a really good drink. I'll talk a little bit more about it after the break. But uh, but the the I want to say one more thing about it. So the alcohols that we use here or the alcohol that I use here is a, is a gin from St. George. So I picked this one because it's from Alameda. Oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, so near where you went to school, obviously. Um, specifically the Botanivore. And, and again, I'll talk about that more later, but um, that's what we're drinking tonight. Excellent. Yeah, well, give me some hot takes. I was gonna say, I had a sip and I think that it tastes like a key lime pie, which is Ooh. one of my favorite desserts, so well done. Thank you. And seeing the uh, effort that behind the creation of just one of these, I'm really honored and impressed that this is the cocktail for the evening. <laughs> the effort is half the fun. I'm not gonna lie. So, like, you know how they say there are drinks you're not supposed to drink when you're in a date, when you're in particular situations. I feel like this would be a terrible drink for many occasions because. <laughs> like, Especially, you know, guys who are trying to choose like the best drink to get at a cocktail bar if they are not usually, if they're not used to going to cocktail bars. (laughs) 
I mean, it looks like a milkshake. You, you're not going to look like a manly man drinking this, <laughs> but you're going to feel great because it tastes amazing. Which is part of the reason why we're here, Noel. we got to get those manly man preconceived notions of That's drinks right. out of people's We're heads. breaking down toxic masculinity Absolutely. one delicious cocktail at a time. You're goddamn right. This is the mission statement of Profiles, actually. I feel like that's... Yeah. We've been doing it. this wrong. That's it. what we should be focused on. <laughs> well, talking about toxic masculinity, if we might turn on to our guests' experience, Abigail. Friggin' hot segue, man. <laughs> Great. So <good>. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Abigail, you work with domestic abuse, domestic assault cases. Yes. You've been doing that for a long time, right? I have. Yeah. So I was hired to be a prosecutor at the San Diego DA's office back in January of 2014. So it's been almost eight years now. It's gone by really quickly. Um, but before that, I worked in a restraining order clinic where I worked with um, mostly domestic violence victims who were trying to um, seek out restraining orders to have some protection from their abusers. Um, and then before that, I worked as a rape crisis counselor for a women's shelter in Oakland. Um, it's an organization called Bay Area Women Against Rape. Um, so I've been working um, mostly around the areas of domestic violence and sexual assault um, since I pretty much since I graduated from college. Wow. Well, thank you so much for helping those vulnerable people. Um, and like my first question is, I think, a question that we can all learn from. Like, so in those jobs, like rape crisis counseling, and you have to be talking to people who are in a completely different mindset, mind space situation than you could possibly be in as as a lawyer, um, how, how do you approach a conversation that's going to get messy? Yeah. Most likely with someone who's in a completely different mindset to what you have. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, you know, the thing I'll say is, although you're right, there is some distance between, uh, where I am as like the attorney and where a victim might be as someone who is a survivor of domestic violence. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that domestic violence is such a prevalent, um, horrible issue that really impacts, I think more people than most realize. Mm. Um, so in terms of violent crime, domestic violence is the number one violent crime that kills women mm -hmm. in the United States. Yeah. And the statistics are, <laughs> I didn't want to get super into statistics before this interview, um, but I, I do think that two important ones to know are that one in about three women will experience domestic violence in their lifetime and one in four Jeez. men will experience some form of domestic violence in their lifetime. And that's so, in the United States. Yes, in okay. the United States. And, you know, that's uh, those those numbers are terrifying. But I do think that that sort of knowledge helps you when you're in a position where you are working with someone who is a survivor of domestic violence so that it's not so um, othering, you know mm. what I mean? Um, yeah. So you're not saying like, oh, here I am in my ivory tower, you know, so far removed from what you're experiencing. Because yeah. um, yeah. when I first started, this is not a field that I really thought that I would um, choose a career in. I was an English major in college. I thought that I would become a professor. I had no um, aspirations to become an attorney or to work in this area. But when I was in college, I, um, you know, 
just knew a lot, was very close with um, a lot of women and we, and kind of forging these types of friendships that I hadn't really experienced before in terms of like the depths of things that we shared about our lives. Um, it was so scary to hear so many stories of mm. domestic violence amongst my peer group. Um, and that I think is really like the trigger for me that got me thinking about um, eventually choosing a career in this area. Um, but uh, sorry, I realize I'm like circling back a long way to your <laughs> question, but um, I think when I'm speaking with a survivor of domestic violence, um, you you do need to have a lot of patience and empathy because the sad truth is that oftentimes, uh, especially as a prosecutor, a lot of times when I'm talking to someone who is a victim of domestic violence, uh, I am the last person they want to talk to. Yeah. Um, there has been some sort of intervention has happened where there's been arrest that's been made or a report to child welfare services. And so by the time I'm talking to this person, um, there have been a lot of things that have happened in between. Mm. And um, unfortunately, I think, you know, it takes a lot of uh, it takes a lot of time, a lot of resources and a lot of different circumstances for someone to successfully be able to leave a domestic violence relationship. And so if, if it were my expectation to go into these meetings by thinking I'm going to like change your life and you're going to leave this situation <laughs> and we're going to, you know, take my hand and I'm going to, you know, save you. That's just not, um, one that's just not a realistic perspective to have. And it's, um, it's, it's one of the most difficult things about the job. I think is you see a lot of, uh, people who aren't ready to leave that kind yeah. of scenario. Yeah. So, okay, you kind of touched on this a little bit. So, I mean, getting into this, this is heavy stuff, right? I mean, yeah. you're, you're not you're not going into work every day like, man, I just, I feel it. <laughs> I know this is going to be an, an enjoyable day, right? There's yeah. going to be some dark things. So when you were when you were making this decision, was there a specific inflection point in which you were like, I can't stand on the sidelines anymore? Or was it more emergent from all of these different stories and stuff? That's a great question. Um, I think when I was, you know, when I, when I, gra when I graduated from college, I'd had some exposure, um, but I was still thinking, you know, I, I loved being an English major. I loved to read and write. And I wanted to take some time before going to grad school to yeah. figure out what I really want to do. And so in the two years or so between um, undergrad and ultimately when I went to law school, I was working for Bay Area Women Against Rape. And I was also looking at, you know, applications for graduate programs in English. And um, I think it was my experience of working as a rape crisis counselor where I was either going to Highland Hospital in Oakland yep. and, you know, helping a company, um, predominantly women who were there as victims of sexual assault, who were getting like forensic medical examinations done or working a crisis hotline and speaking with, um, victims. And, you know, it was this strange thing that started to happen where I was like working on like a writing portfolio for grad programs and like mm -hmm. looking at like papers I'd written about like how this turn of phrase and this line of poetry is significant. And then like, <laughs> then at night I'd be like working on this crisis hotline. Yeah, and there's, it's, it's there's not a dichotomy that, yeah, impact. It's not that one is more important than the other. That's certainly not what I mean. But in terms of my own um, sort of worldview, I started to really shift. It's funny how things in life happen that way. Yeah. 
But that's when I started thinking about it. And I was fortunate enough to accompany someone who was testifying in a domestic violence trial. So I went as sort of like a support person. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting in the courtroom watching the prosecutor um, kind of, you know, ask questions about this incident that happened. And it was just such a strange, like, spidey sense feeling. It's like, maybe I could do this. Um, And I had no, like no preparation for law school. Like I wasn't a poli-sci person. I wasn't a philosophy major. Um, but there was just something that felt like, um, like a pull. I was like, okay, this is, this is maybe something I could do. Um, and it took everyone by surprise. I think my family, I called my parents and they were like, what are you, what? Like what? Yeah. Yeah. Who are you? What's happening? Uh, so yeah, so it, it took, Everyone by surprise, including myself. Wow. But okay. yeah, I think um, at that time I was like, oh, okay, like this is this is what I want to do. That takes serious gumption. I mean, not only to go to law school, right? Which notoriously like difficult. It's but, terrible. <laughs> yeah. Also, I mean, to go against like the expected path, right? Even for yourself. You know, I it's it was strange. I felt this sort of once I decided, okay, I think this is what I want to do. It, it suddenly became this tunnel vision thing where yeah. I was like, okay, there's nothing else I want to do. Um, and there is almost a kind of, I will say, there's kind of like a blind arrogance about that, right? Where I was just like, yeah, I'm going to choose this career that I actually don't know a ton about, but I'm interested <laughs> in it and I'm just going to go full steam ahead. Yeah, I didn't know anyone who's a prosecutor. No one in my family has done anything like that. Uh, but I just, once I had this idea, I was like, yeah, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And I'll do it forever. And, uh, yeah. you know, in hindsight now, I'm like, wow, that was... <laughs> That was, um, there, there may have been some more questions I could have asked or some, well, you know, some more I time know. I could have taken, but I really was full steam ahead. Yeah. But, I, I hear what you're saying, but I mean, perhaps it's in the best interest of the world that people who think about or feel passionate about these difficult careers don't question it too much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, in the beginning, go for it. Yeah. Cause like, <laughs> I mean, they're one way or another we need we need attorneys who work on difficult cases we need emergency doctors who see people in the you know in the edge between life and death we need people to do those jobs and i think if we all asked infinite amount of questions (laughs) we wouldn't get around to doing much i took the words out of my mouth i mean every phd student like doesn't know what they're getting into that's like basically the definition of like a PhD and many graduate degrees in yeah, general, right? Just like the whole in. point. The whole point is that you don't know it. That's right. why you go to graduate school, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's. Um, I agree. It's good. It's good that you have a little bit of blind faith in yourself. You know. Yeah. It, like, I won't go so far as to like endorse great man syndrome because that's a that's a huge mistake. But I do think that you like every single individual like needs a little bit to like truly push towards success and change you need a little bit of the blinders on and like you, you need to believe that you are better than other people at at least one thing, like better than everybody else. Oh, I don't know if I can say that I felt um, that necessarily, but I did feel this sense of um, this is what I meant to do. Um, I didn't know if I would be any good at it, but I just, it was enough. It was important enough to me and interesting enough to me to think, okay, I'm going to yeah. sign yeah. up for that law school tuition and I'm going to do this thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And I imagine yeah. in law school you had to learn so many things that had nothing to do oh my gosh, with the you type guys. of justice oh my you gosh. wanted to I bring remember to the sitting, world. Tort reform. Oh my God. I was sitting in a tax law class and I was just thinking like, I got to get out of here. Like what is, what is happening? Yeah. So there was a lot of, um, you know, cause in law school there was like a core curriculum and there was so much that I had no interest in whatsoever. Yep. And I was just really, I really wanted to work. Um, and so the three years of law school felt so long because I was just, I was like, I already yeah. know what I want to do. Just let me get in there. Um, Were you unusual in that among your cohort? Yeah, I would say a lot of people I met in law school were either straight out of undergrad. Mm -hmm. So they were, you know, 22 years old mm -hmm. and just like going for it. And I think had the attitude of like, well, law school's a law degree seems useful and it could lead to many different opportunities. Yeah. Um, but my friends, my closest friends were all people who were interested in criminal law from the jump. Um, and whether they wanted to be public defenders or prosecutors or appellate attorneys, um, we had this kind of camaraderie of like, oh, okay, we actually know what we want to do. We're just trying yeah. to get there. Gotcha. Yeah. That's fascinating. I, don't, I think that's a, that's a pretty rare thing for most people, I think. I mean, you clearly have like a driving goal, right? Or at least yeah. there's these underlying principles which like keep you coming back to, or like drove you to work and keep you coming back, right? Yeah. Not everybody has that. That's a hard thing to find. It is. It is. And that's, I think that was the, the motivating factor was like, once you find it, you're like, oh, like what else would I do if yeah. I know this about myself or, you know, this is a subject matter that has like enamored me in some way, like you got to go for it. Yeah. Well, at the risk of, at the risk of taking over on the questions here. I've got another follow-up. Oh, yeah. This is just fascinating. <laughs> you know? So one of the things that like really strikes me is I, I am generally a pretty emotionally stable individual, but you know, for example, COVID was really hard for me because you know, there were all of these things that I was faced with that I don't have to deal with in my daily life. I was faced with the problems that individuals in the world faces. And I was like, well, this sucks and I can't escape this. And I, I am not doing well emotionally because of that. Yeah. I mean, do you, how do you deal with that on a personal level? Like, you know, on some level, I assume you just like become somewhat jaded to the, to the things that are happening because you've just seen so much of it. But on, on the same level, is it like, do you go home at the end of the day sometimes and are just like, wow, I actually experienced a new negative emotion about this today and I don't know how to handle it. Yeah. I mean, I think what you just articulated is something that a lot of us felt in COVID, like no matter what profession, there's just yeah. the, wow. the sense of like a complete loss of control over yeah. so many things is overwhelming. For me, um, what has been really important for me to just kind of manage the like heavy lifting of like the emotional aspects of my job where previously I had such a clear divide between being at work and being at home. Mm -hmm. um, I live with my sister and my brother-in-law and so they are not involved in criminal law whatsoever. And uh, they mean this in the most supportive way, but when I come home from work, they tell me, please God, do not tell us about your day. We don't want to hear what horrifying <laughs> thing you've experienced. Oh and God. honestly, like I actually really appreciate that because it creates a clear separation. But then with COVID, I mean, even the courts were shut down. And so right. I would be in my bedroom, which is typically like a safe space where I like sleep and eat snacks. And suddenly I was like bringing, literally bringing my work home with mm. me. 
And I would be, you know, on the phone or talking to, you know, detectives or witnesses. And, you know, every once in a while, my sister or my brother-in-law would be like walking around in the background and their like expressions of horror over the things that they would overhear. They'd be like, what's going on? And so that was, that was hard to manage. That is insanely rough. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine like if during the first few months of COVID, I personally couldn't stop thinking about work. Yeah. Like 24-7, I was just thinking about what came next. If work was something with, you know, such horrible storylines and so much suffering involved in it, that's going to take a huge toll on people. Yeah, it um, really um, it really did feel pretty overwhelming. The first, uh, the just before you kind of got into like a new rhythm like we all had to do, I think I really didn't know how to really have that separation anymore. And so I would just find myself, I also felt, I don't know if you guys experienced this, but I also felt a lot of pressure to just work more because you don't have that space, right? Like you're not like, okay, I'm going home to have dinner. You'd be like, well, my work is here. I should just like keep going. It didn't happen, but I felt worse about not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that for sure. Yeah. I made the mistake of putting my desktop computer in my dining room table. That's a huge table. mistake. Oh, no. Yeah. And so it was horrible because I would, like, eat right next to my computer. Yeah. I would work right next to where i just eaten. And the day I got a de- um, an actual desk in a different room, that day my life changed for better. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, because <laughs> there's so much... I associate so much happiness with the meals I'm eating. And so to have that blend, I think, would be super tough. Oh, yeah. So I've heard, speaking of COVID then, I've heard a lot of speculation, but I am not in, I am not clued in to the basically crime statistics, specifically in San Diego, but also the U.S. at large, right? Beyond the ones that are published in the New York Times, functionally. Um, I have to imagine, and I have heard that domestic violence increased like exponentially. Yeah, during COVID. that is accurate. Yeah. I mean, and like, as I'm sure you could imagine, I mean, if you were sheltering in place with someone, I'm sure that the tension you felt in your home, even with your pal, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your family, um, you know, just because of all of the uncertainty in the world, that adds a lot to the pressure cooker that is your yeah. shared space. And so, yeah. And so, you know, these, uh, we definitely saw a huge increase in domestic violence cases across the board. And, uh, it was, it was crazy. It really, it felt like it was just like a lot of ticking time bombs happening. Yeah. Do you think, do you think in like the wake of that, there will be a plunge? Like this is, this is totally like an engineer scientist perspective <laughs> and taking the human element out. So I sincerely apologize to anybody who's feeling triggered <laughs> listening to this. But do you think that that was basically like a bit of a front load and you'll see a decrease in the domestic violence cases because a lot of like basically ticking time, bog, ticking time bombs went off earlier than you might expect otherwise? Gosh, I would hope so. I think one of the things about domestic violence and, you know, we get asked all the time, like, you know, why do these victims stay in these relationships? And um, sometimes it's just as practical as they have nowhere else to go. And so when you have these, on top of that, a shelter in place role, or on top of that, people losing their jobs, and on top of that, you know, not having the resources to, to go and be with, you know, supportive family member or whatnot Mm -hmm. um i think 
that kind of pressure just increased so, so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because that already exists during normal non-COVID sheltering in place times. And so then to add that additional restraint is, um, creates a lot um, more issues. Yeah. I mean, yeah, what's, I imagine. what is crazy to me about COVID and also just personal relationships, because at the end, what you deal with in a domestic abuse case is the ugly outfall or history of a personal relationship. So much of what happens in personal relationships doesn't really happen. It happens in people's minds. Right. 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 So, I mean, the classic story is the insecure man who is obsessed with thinking that his wife or partner is cheating on him or is, you know, dressing inappropriately. And these are all things that are happening in the dude's mind. Mm -hmm. So where I'm trying to get to is I think, you know, the, the, when we talk about domestic abuse, the people that we should be addressing is Mm -hmm. men. (laughs) <laughs> you know, for like yeah. 90-something percent of it or whatever. Yeah, I mean, certainly domestic violence, like, impacts, you know, it transcends um, barriers like socioeconomic divides, gender, sexual orientation. Um, but, you know, it's absolutely a fact that um, most victims of domestic violence are women and the perpetrators of the abuse that they face are men um, in these heterosexual relationships. And yeah, we see, I mean, that was something in college that I talked to my girlfriends a lot. You know, we'd be like going to like self-defense classes and we'd go to these, you know, all these um, different workshops um, to aimed at keeping women safe. And we would chat, like, where are the workshops to teach men not to attack women? Like, where, where is, like, you know, it seems like this is, you know, we're, if we're waiting. Where's the don't be a dick class? Yeah. Like, if we're waiting to train women as to how to fight off an attacker, like, there are so many steps we've skipped before we've gotten to that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, but when I was in college, one of the things I um, participated in, I was a peer educator and I worked for um, the center on campus called the Gender and Equity Center. And we were tasked with going to fraternities and sororities to talk about sexual harassment, consent, sexual assault. And let me tell you, like as like a 19-year-old student at Cal walking into a fraternity to be there to talk about consent, I don't know if anything has trained me more on like public speaking because yeah talk about a hostile oh my gosh it was where was everyone just trying to outsmart you and you know i got a lot of questions about false allegations i mean they were like obsessed with this idea that women just make all of this up well it's it's, the one thing that could impact them right they only impact their life and it's also like a boogeyman that we've constructed that because there are a handful of very high profile cases where women, you know, made false accusations about men. We now say, oh, it's an epidemic of false accusations. We all need to watch out for women trying to get our money or get us into jail because of that. And the reality is, is that's such a, such a like minuscule percentage of the types of cases that, you know, 
get reported and and yeah it is it was just wild i mean some some of the guys were very respectful all the, but you know it was really um an intimidating space to go into yeah and i remember thinking to myself if i were a male student like what a difference the reception might be mm-hmm. you know if i were as like a male peer coming to talk to other men about issues like anger management and like really like safe boundaries and relationships and all these things. But I really felt so alienated as a woman going in. Um, I should also say that, you know, I'm gay and I had a very, what I'll classify as a very lesbian haircut. (laughs) So I'm like, you know, imagine I'm like 19 years old. I've got like an asymmetrical pixie cut and I'm like going in with my Doc Martens. I'm like, I'm here to talk to you guys about consent. They were just like, they were not prepared for, you know, I just, that was a, it was like a tough pairing. Yeah. Um, But, you know, to your point, I think that is such a, it's, it's so lacking, I think, in the way that we talk to boys and men about this these kinds of issues. Um, even as the perspective of, like, um, one part of my job is um, taking cases to trial. And when you are presenting a case in trial, um, what I've found as a woman is that I have to be very careful about how emotional I get when I am describing a case because it's so easy to be written off as... Um, Just that emotional woman. Yeah, like, yeah, this girl is hysterical. She's not objective. She doesn't know her case. Whereas I've seen some of my male colleagues deliver like very powerful you know, closing arguments or you know get choked up. Um, and it's, seen, it's like revered with so much respect, right? Like the, you can see the jury like being like, oh wow, this, he really cares, you know? It's such a difference yeah. in perspective. It's like when Tom Cruise is flying off the handle and uh, what, what's the movie where he's uh, he's the prosecutor? Oh with yeah, you can't handle the truth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So is it A Few yeah. Good Men? Yeah, it's a, it's A Few Good Men, right? Like yeah. that's a powerful moment, right? Tom Cruise just like starts losing his shit. Oh yeah, right? yeah. You know, and the, the, the you can't handle the truth moment. Yeah, imagine if that... I mean, there actually is the woman in... Like, the the female attorney in that movie is, like, the one who has to convince him to basically do all this stuff. And she is not given the opportunity to basically fly off the handle because she is not respected. And she, like, has a whole monologue about this, how she's not respected. It's crazy. I mean, you know, I've had cases before where, you know, at the end, um, sometimes you're allowed to get feedback from the jury once the case has ended. And you can ask, you know, like... You know what? Yeah, like you know, is there anything I could have done to present in a more effective way? And notes on your homework. Yeah, and it's (laughs) so often I've received. um, I shouldn't say so often, but I have received comments before from jurors who made comments about like my suit or my hair. It's like I really—that's not actually the kind of feedback I'm asking for. You know what I mean? That's pretty um, devastating. I mean, that is like someone not realizing what they're sitting in court for. Yeah. Because if you actually knew what it meant to have an, like to have gone through an abusive relationship or to have to go to jail because you're guilty of a crime, yeah. you would realize that a suit or someone stands has no importance whatsoever at all. No, but that's the crazy thing. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a subject matter that can be, um, you know, perceived as very gendered. Um, and you know, on top of that, you're a woman in the courtroom and you're dealing with very emotional content, but there's sort of restraints 
that you or that I feel um, in how I can deliver it without yeah. while still being taken seriously. Actually, one of my colleagues pointed out to me the other day, they were like, do you know that you lower your voice register when you're speaking in court? Oh, hell yeah. Which I was like, no, I you don't. You code switch. Yeah, I was like, that's not Whoa. a thing that I do. I yeah. don't do that. I always have kind of like a higher pitched voice. And they're like, no, no, no. When you're in court, your voice is different. Yeah. And now, now I hear it. And I wasn't even aware that I was doing it. And I think it's a subconscious... You know, association that if I have a higher girlish voice, that I'm not going to be taken seriously. Yeah. Especially when I have these cases that are so emotional, like deal with, you know. Yeah. Did that? Did know. that fuck you up mentally? It really did. Yeah. It really made me upset because I was like, "That's not real. There's no right. way that I do that." But it absolutely is this like thing in your subconsciousness, or in mine, I should say, that I wasn't even aware that I was doing. But now, now, whenever I'm in court, I'm like. Maybe I should make an effort to like be even higher, like overcorrect and be like, hi. <laughs> that gets you second guessing yourself so yeah. hard. You dress yeah. pink every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like really girl oh it up. Oh my God. Yeah. But it's, it's one of those weird things where it's like, you know, you've already got a lot to kind of take in um, just with the subject matter. And then on top of that, these sort of stereotypes about hmm. gender and, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's... Yeah, it's a trip. You so, know, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No. In a very poor analogy, um, which I apologize for in advance, <laughs> it's almost as now. if you're like a like a bug exterminator who's buying their poison from bugs. <laughs> you know, like you're trying to solve an issue of like gender disparity and like mistreatment of women, and. In the process of doing that and getting that justice, you are doing it while swimming in this other different yeah. sea of injustice. Like that's, I mean, talk about crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. So, I mean, off of that, you know, and off of the frat, the, the question that came to my mind when you're talking about talking to the fraternity, you know, is um, growing up as a high school student in the United States, you know, you take U.S. government, your three pillars, yada, yada, yada. The U.S. justice system, the thing that I constantly remember and that is, you know, different than like the Title IX investigations and stuff is I always hear innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. I, that seems like a minefield to me. And I'm curious, yeah. I'm curious as somebody who is like very much a part of the justice system, you work in like basically an elected office, right? You work yeah. on, under the elected office for San Diego government. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think especially too with um, domestic violence specific crimes, I mean, these are crimes that by their nature occur behind closed doors. There yeah. are rarely other witnesses. So you have a victim's account of what happened. Maybe there's an injury that corroborates her account. Maybe there are kids who witness some of it or maybe not. Um, and then you have a perpetrator and, and very rarely do you have a lot more. Right. And but you have this burden of proof that requires you to say, you know, it's not just enough for me to believe the victim's account. It's, can I prove it to a jury? Mm -hmm. And it just feels like such a difficult task when the crime itself is dependent on the sort of like secretive behind closed doors, um, a test of loyalty, like all of those factors are still present. 
Um, that's true also of, you know, in like the most extreme cases, like child molest cases. Yeah. There are no witnesses. You have a kid, you have an abuser, mm. and very rarely do you have um, much else to work off of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, initially when you start getting these cases, you're like, what am I going to, how, how can I prove this? And then your investigation is going to really depend on very small corroborating details, as many as you can find, right? Yeah. Um, and even still, even after all of that, you put on your case, you believe in your victim wholeheartedly, you've got all these pieces that can come together. At the end of the day, your jury can still tell you, yeah, we thought something happened, but, you know, how can we know for sure? And it's heartbreaking. And then, yeah. then you might be wow. in the position of, telling a victim who went through the long and grueling process of being subjected to the criminal justice system that at the end of the day, the jury didn't think there was enough. I mean, that's like, you know, like talk about like, uh, that's it's, world shattering. It's yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, what people don't realize is the, the trauma that it puts um, victims and witnesses in to have to be called into court, relive, a horrifying thing that has happened to them in the context of their private family or their private relationship. And, you know, cases get continued. They drag on forever. They're subject to cross-examination. Um, you know, there's all, all kinds of stuff. And even after all of that, mm-hmm. a jury could still rightfully say, you know, there's just not enough evidence. We just, we, we can't know for sure. I mean, that's, it, it breaks your heart. Yeah. And it's sometimes it can feel um, really hopeless because you just feel like, you know, how could anyone be motivated to leave if that's what the justice system, if that's, you know, the, a possible outcome yeah. in the justice system, right? Yeah. On the flip side, though, I, I always talk about my job like that the lows are really low, but the highs are so high. Like we right. work in these extremes. So on the flip side, you could say like, hey, someone who's been subjected to abuse for years and years and years can finally have the courage to come and speak in court and have a jury say absolutely what happened to you is wrong and criminal and this person's going to be held accountable. Yeah. Right? Like those two extremes exist, you know, at the same time. And so it's just... um, yeah, it's, it's a lot. This is the kind of uplifting stuff that my family is like, please don't tell us about your day. We can't take it. But yeah, I mean, the, the, those are um, heavy realities to grapple with. Yeah. You know, it's funny hearing that. I, I'm i a little broken emotionally, as maybe all PhD students are. But uh, I, you know, that's actually pretty hopeful for me, right? Because I... I so much of what I hear and feel is that like the specifically in the United States in this moment in 2021, right? Is that, is that the systems are a hundred percent broken, right? And everything is, there's no justice. There's no like better method and everybody's getting screwed. That is obviously not the case, (laughs) but it feels like that. Right. Yeah. And the fact that the system can work, right? Like, Oh yeah. That it's not, like it may, it may be, it may be fundamentally flawed, but that there is a better way, right? Or yeah. like that there, there is a path forward for some people. And maybe that that's how, like we use that to guide the yeah. next steps. Like that is hopeful. That is yeah. true optimism. Absolutely. I think, you know, for as heavy as the subject matter is, and you, you know, you see these crime scene photos, you go to autopsies, you see all kinds of crazy stuff. 
But um, one thing that I just started keeping mental track of just to stay sane in my job is what's really amazing is you will have these cases like domestic violence, child abuse. And again, these are crimes that predominantly happen behind closed doors. But then you'll, in a random police report, in a random investigation, there will be some good Samaritan, some yeah. neighbor who hears something or senses something's wrong who calls 911 or some coworker who notices like, hey, you've had a, you have a black, like what is happening at your house? You're coming to work and you're bruised up. Like, you know, there are these like random, truly good Samaritans who are also part of the things that we see on a day-to-day basis. And yeah. that to me is like the most hopeful thing that a complete stranger would take it upon themselves to try to intervene. Like the number of cases that we see where, you know, there's some altercation happening out in public and a group of people will see it and Mm. actually have the courage to like step in and get involved. Um, Obviously, you know, first and foremost, everyone be safe. Don't, don't get involved. Like, like, (laughs) I definitely don't want the message to be like, get out there and like seek vigilante justice. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But it is really amazing to kind of hear these stories of, of people who um, do extend that kind of kindness and um, who are just observant enough to see that mm-hmm. there's a person who needs help in, in whatever way it is that they, they choose to help them. And so those, those parts of cases really provide me with a lot of comfort that, you know, that's yeah. still out there in humanity. Yeah, that's pretty great. Yeah. I mean, that's really positive. Like in terms of, I guess, and I was about to ask you this, because you were saying these type of cases, they happen behind closed doors. Yeah. And so the type of evidence that you can use to prosecute is very limited. What, like, are these Good Samaritans the, one of the more common ways in which you can get a, a, like, make a good case in court? Or are there other sources of evidence that you usually rely on yeah so domestic violence is um a unique crime in that it's the type of crime where you can actually um admit prior evidence of domestic violence to sort of prove up the current exactly yeah. yeah you can use sort of this um you can bring in evidence that this is abuse that has been ongoing or that there's been a pattern. Like maybe this person has abused several different partners in the past. Um, So that can be really powerful. I think um, third party witnesses where you have someone who has no connection to the couple whatsoever, no bias one way or the other. That's really powerful. Um, You know, even some like details like, um, like the actual 911 call. So before, the moment in time when the victim is afraid enough to call 911 or has had enough and is willing to call 911 um, because that provides a nice juxtaposition to, you know, maybe by the time the case goes to trial, the victim is now on the stand saying, oh, no, nothing happened. Right. And so that um, ha- having those two pieces, like where she is now, maybe now that they've gotten back together or she feels pressure to testify on his behalf or what have you. And then the original 911 recording of when it was happening in real time. Like that's really powerful too. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, like when we watch crime shows, you know, everything has like surveillance or there's like a hair in a, in a wheat field 30 <laughs> miles away that solves everything or DNA, you know, all that stuff. Um, unfortunately in these types of cases, they, we don't necessarily have that much, um, complex, like techie kind of evidence. Yeah. And a lot of it is just 
you know, those little, little pieces, little pieces of corroboration. Yeah. Follow up to that. What is usually the crime that you accuse the people that you prosecute of? Like, Mm. what's the actual legal definition of what they did? Yeah, so it's interesting because domestic violence really encompasses a lot of different types of crimes. So you can have... Um, lower level domestic violence is like vandalism that causes less than $400 in damage or a battery where there's no visible injury mm-hmm. or things as significant as, you know, assault where you actually knock a person out and they're unconscious or um, allegations that there is significant injury, um, things as severe as like spousal rape, murders fall within domestic violence. Um, it's really, it runs the gauntlet. And then on top of just those types of violent crimes, you also have things like, um, you know, making criminal threats, stalking, um, violation of restraining orders, child abuse, um, child sexual abuse, all kinds. There's like a, my, the name of my unit is the family protection unit. And so we prosecute domestic violence in all of its glory. So in all of the different iterations and forms it takes, child abuse, which includes physical and sexual child abuse, and then elder abuse. And elder abuse, we've seen, what we've seen a lot oh, of yeah. is like elder fraud, where mm-hmm. there are scammers scamming elderly people out of their retirement, out of all their savings, oh, and God. preying upon them. Yeah. yeah. Right so, beneath the will kind of yeah. situation. Yeah. So, you know, real, real uplifting stuff, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes you think the world's a better place. <laughs> uh, yes. So, okay. I've got... Oodles more questions, things I want to ask about. We've, I've got a, at least one viral video to ask you about. Oh, you probably know where that's headed. <laughs> okay. I want to ask you about your relationship with the police, which may be a fraught topic. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this drink. But first, let's take a break. I'll Great. make us some more, and uh, we'll be right back. Okay. And our listeners will hear a word from our sponsors. <laughs> Are you bored of your mundane life? Do you need some excitement? Try extreme knitting. You'll make sweaters and socks like you've never seen. These needles are on fire. Extreme Knitting will give you the things that you're missing in your life. It'll take your whole experience to the next level. That's X-T-R-E-M-E-K-N-I-T-T-I-N-G dot com. Alrighty, and we're back with a few more drinks. So, I wanted to say a few more things about this cocktail. So... The Ramos Gin Fizz, uh, notoriously high effort. Again, sweating like a stuck pig over here. <laughs> There's a few markers of like a really well-made Ramos Gin Fizz. And so the first one is the meringue puck at the top. Um, and that is basically when you top it with a seltzer, it should create that. And it should be really like, you know, the classic stiff peaks when you're baking. Mm-hmm. And that comes from the egg white and the cream. So when you serve a Ramos Gin Fizz, you have to serve it with a straw. And you put the straw in the middle and it's got to be able to stand up by itself. That's like the classic, you've done it correctly. (laughs) That's the measure of success. That's the measure of success. Straw placement. It's straw placement and like (laughs) straw. It's how vertical your straw is. I'll I'll, I'll refrain from making any uh, phallic puns here. Wait, hold on. Um, What do you call that drink where you put ice cream on soda? A float. A float. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think this is like an alcoholic float with no ice cream. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The cream gets it, and it's also the egg white in it, too. So this is like a classic. So whiskey sours, flips, all generally have egg white. And what, you, what happens when you're making a drink with egg white is you do something called a dry shake. 
So you put the egg white in and you shake without ice first. And the alcohol and citrus denatures the proteins in the egg white. So they kind of unfold and they capture air. And that's what makes it really fluffy. That's all due to the egg white. And then you shake it after that with ice. If you shake the egg white with the ice, it actually creates like frozen shards. And you mm. don't get that really fluffy character. Huh. So there's your level up technique for, yeah. the, nice. for the evening. All right. Well, that was a lot of me uh, <laughs> talking about the drink. No, but thank you. It's delicious. Yeah, I'm glad you like it. It's, uh, as I said, one of my favorites. Don't make it that often for fairly obvious reasons. <laughs> Again, sweating profusely over here. <laughs> um, yeah, so Abby, I wanted to, I wanted to ask, uh, so there was a viral video that came out. Uh, it was really depressing, but it was pretty funny at the same time. Uh, during quarantine, there was a court. It was on Zoom. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, you know where I'm headed with this. I Maybe do. you should explain. <laughs> so if, I believe we're talking about the same thing, but please yeah. interrupt me if I've okay. gone astray. But I believe you're talking about um, a viral video of a video hearing where a prosecutor was asking a domestic violence victim questions yes. on direct examination. And during the questioning, it appeared um, that the victim, whose face was on screen, that she was looking at someone or something in the room. This is exactly the one I'm yes. talking about. Yes. And this amazing prosecutor, by just like sheer intuition, um, stopped the proceeding and asked the judge to confirm whether or not the defendant was improperly present in the same room that the victim was testifying from and influencing her testimony. Mm-hmm. And sure, R. R. Kelly behind the door steps. Yeah. And sure enough, um, kudos to the police department out there too, because an officer ended up going to the victim's home. And the next thing you see, the defendant is being... Uh, placed under arrest because sure enough, he is in the same place as the victim in violation of a court order. That is insane. And this, I mean, it was just like clearly like her, this prosecutor's gut intuition that just recognized what was happening is amazing. It's an amazing video. So what's your reaction? I mean, obviously like, yes, thank you. But like also there's gotta be some horror. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's horrible. I mean, I think that was one of the scariest things when we, transitioned into video court proceedings because you know if the if the abuser is not in custody and is now in a situation where very easily he can be in the same place as the victim you could see how quickly someone could take advantage of that situation and just be sitting across from the victim and literally like directing her or intimidating her into whatever it is that her court testimony is supposed to establish or not establish. Um, and so when seeing that, I, I thought two things. Number one, I was like, this prosecutor is incredible. I, what an amazing woman. And also like, oh my gosh, these, this, like all the things that we're afraid of happening all, you know, occurring in this viral moment. Yikes. Yeah. That is just a gigantic yikes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, I guess it speaks to the lack of intelligence in part of, from, you know, from this perpetrator who is like, well, maybe you had a chance with this trial, but since you did what you did, you're fucked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, hope. yeah. At one point the judge, cause he was also on screen and, you know, either in the same room or in a different room, but whatever. And, uh, at one point the judge asked him, 
I need you to confirm, you know, where you are. What, what is your location right now? And this guy was like, oh, I'm, I'm at my own house. And the judge, like very quick-witted, was like, okay, well, go outside and show me the address of where you are to prove that you're not in the same home as the victim. And the guy is like, oh, my phone is connected to the wall charger right now. I can't show you the outside. And then, you know, a couple of seconds later, there's like an officer arresting him and he's like shouting at the judge i'm sorry i should have known better i'm oh sorry my God. But so it he was, perjured himself too he did yeah oh yeah yeah <laughs> there it you was go. just getting them on all accounts yeah it, it was really something to see yeah wow so i mean how like court zooms yeah so uh <laughs> there's so there's so much viral content that has come <laughs> the, the, out i'm sure you guys cat. saw the texas cat attorney <laughs> oh <and> yeah <laughs> i thought that's where this conversation was going <laughs> it well, could have easily gone there um i love that video <laughs> but yeah i assure you i am not a cat <laughs> <laughs> i was really impressed with how much everyone kept a straight face for the majority of that <laughs> of that hearing uh, but yeah so during the sh- during the shutdown um there was a period where all court proceedings were done via video mm-hmm. and there were all, all of the hijinks that you can imagine <laughs> were happening. Lawyers being cats, you know? <laughs> um, but it was, it was really, it was a crazy time because, uh, just it's already so much, um, pressure to be in court and presenting yeah. a case and then on top of that to add these additional elements of like <laughs> something as basic as like internet connectivity yeah, my reliability. Isn't working yeah to like hey actually these witnesses are conspiring together in the same room and it's hard to tell if that's actually happening you know yeah yeah it was a, a wild time i'm really wow. glad we're Damn. back in person yeah i don't think i i, I did not have any truly horrendous zoom experiences did yeah, you know i was gonna say did anyone have an accidental hot mic when you weren't uh, supposed to have one? Oh, i saw that in class sure but like, <laughs> i think just like clumsy hot mics yeah. but not <laughs> yeah. catastrophic that's good that's... Didn't, didn't see anybody going to the bathroom live or anything thank Managed god to avoid that one yeah yeah that's the classic like corporate zoom death scenario right <laughs> actually needing to go to the bathroom and forgetting to turn off your mic and camera <laughs> oh no oh, god <laughs> Okay, so uh, transition, smooth transition to a heavy topic. <laughs> From cat video to... Yeah. Okay. Um, so, okay, so, you know, one of the things that I really want to just hear your perspective on is about policing in the mm. United States. So poli- there's been a very public light shown on policing. And um, I, I'm obviously a white dude in America. Um, I have... Wait a second. You're white. Oh, my God. <laughs> Amazing, right? <laughs> you would never tell from my cover is hasty complexion. What? <laughs> I know. I look like a ghost, but in fact, I'm alive. Uh, so, so, I mean, I don't... Hmm, I'm not scared of police, right? I don't, I don't live in that, like, fear or anything. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I have these, like, generally negative attitudes, right? Mm. And especially during, like, the 2020 election, you know, I am very Californian. I, like loved Kamala because she's from California, right? And she espoused some like good liberal like policies. But I also, there was the, you know, the criticism label that her um, lobbed at her that she was like the top cop, right? And all of that garbage that comes along with that. And you work for the district attorney's office, right? Which is like that line is, I mean, to the public, I think it seems somewhat fuzzy, right? Especially when you get to like the, the county and state district attorney's levels, right? Right. I mean, 
you have to have a relationship with police. Certainly. To yes. do your job. Right. Uh, how, I mean, how have you kind of navigated this whole thing? How do you feel about, you know, the backlash to policing in the United States? And like, I mean, how do you kind of move forward this with this, despite the fact that you are, I'm assuming you have to look at cases sometimes mm-hmm. with domestic abuse and stuff where there are police involved as like, you know, the actual people who you have to prosecute. Yeah, that's certainly true. Um, you know, I, these conversations that we've been having with the police, um, I've sort of really tried to take a look at what my own reactions have been and be thoughtful about um, some of the reactions that I've had. Because I will say, um, I think of myself as a very liberal person. Mm-hmm. I absolutely recognize that police reform is necessary. Um, I think that you know the trial of George Floyd was rightly decided by the jury. Um, I understand the criticism um, of some of the actions by police officers and also some of the systemic problems within law enforcement. Yeah. I will say that when these issues were coming more to light, um, you know, especially during the pandemic, I would have these conversations with my sister and my brother-in-law and cause again, the three of us were trapped in a home together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this thing started happening and I had to catch myself because I would start to feel very defensive where this thing started happening where when we would have these conversations about police reform and you know my friends and family would be very vocal about their displeasure and horror not just displeasure absolute horror about Mm -hmm. the way some of the things that the police were doing i had this i had to check myself because i was like what is this like anxiety that i'm feeling during these conversations yeah and I think I was afraid that my family or friends would think that by working as a prosecutor, I was an arm of the police, that I was equivalent to the police, and that the criticism that they had for law enforcement was in turn a criticism of me and what I've chosen to do as a career. Mm -hmm. And I really had to check myself because... you know, these conversations are important and I have seen firsthand um, things that I feel are, uh, the reform that I am seeing people call for, I think is positive, is a good thing. And so I was like, why am I suddenly, I would feel like very tight in the chest and I I would feel like I had to like defend my life choices when that in fact is not what these conversations are about. And so I want to start this conversation by acknowledging that I would start to, before when I would have these conversations with my friends, I would feel sort of preemptively nervous as if I had to be on like defense. And that's not a place I want to be in when having these types of conversations. Um, So it is absolutely true that part of my job, you know, obviously means working with the police. Um, So police officers and detectives will conduct an investigation they submit their reports, the fruit, the results of their investigations to our office. And then we as prosecutors review the investigation and then we determine, do we have enough evidence here to prove that a crime was committed? Do we have the right person to charge? 
Yeah. Is there additional investigation that can be done? Um, or is it a dead end? Do we feel that this is insufficient or that a crime has not occurred? You know, And so we work directly with officers. And I have close working relationships with some detectives and officers that I've worked with for a long time. And it's really interesting to have um, that kind of perspective because I, you know, I'm having these conversations with my friends and family about how reform is necessary and how, you know, some of these cases that have been um, come to light in the media are just atrocious and horrifying. And you to know, say the least, yeah, yeah, to say the least. And then also going to work and like being very proud to work with you know, some of the detectives and officers that I work with and, you know, seeing like the good parts of the jobs too, right? Like yeah. these are also people hopefully who have decided to choose a pr- career where they, hopefully the, hopefully the goal is to help other people, to keep people safe, right? That's the best of what we could ask for, for a, from a police officer. Right. But then it would be, um, very idealistic to say that, um, yeah, everything's fine and nothing needs to be fixed. And everyone who is calling for reform is just misguided because that's, that's not the case either. Right. Um, and so, sorry, I feel like I'm like giving a long rambling answer, but it's because I want, I want to be thoughtful about, um, the perspective. Um, I can only speak from my own, um, sort of experience. Um, but I, I absolutely understand and share the position that reform needs to happen. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think that there is still a lot of good and um, a lot of difficulty about being a police officer that I think people don't, like the public maybe doesn't necessarily realize, you know, or doesn't understand like the sacrifice and the, um, cause for as much, as much horrifying stuff as I see from work, like they're, they're first responders. Like they're the first on scene, the first person called, um, I will say domestic violence cases in general are some of the most dangerous calls that police officers respond to. Oh, I can imagine. You know? Yeah. And, um, it's, uh, I, I would not, I would not want that job. I, I don't have the, I don't have what it takes to be a police officer with any respect. And so it's one of those things, right? It's hard because I see some of the best parts of being a police officer. And then I also, along with everyone else, see some of the worst things too. You know what I mean? So it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I don't think anybody ever thought it was an easy job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it hasn't gotten easier. Yeah. But, you know, I think sometimes we don't stop to realize that oftentimes the people who we see as perpetrators of violence might be in an alternative storyline that is still very real victims of a system as much as they are perpetrators in a different Mm, mm storyline, you know? So like, for example, think about a crooked cop who is forced to turn in a certain amount of arrests or a certain amount of like money to the department from bribes or whatever. Um, And if not, he's out of a job. Yeah. Right. And, and, and there is of course this point that, 
you know the people people say with say this with the holocaust like if if no one had followed through with the orders nothing would have happened so like it's you can't really totally blame it on on the system but i think to fix these very deep problems of society we got to recognize that even people who are like blatantly racist are victims because they their brains and their souls have been poisoned with these ideas that are harmful not only to the world but to them because they're blinding them um so yeah, yeah. you know on a, on a more on a the same kind of principle of that but a more subtle level and obviously this is fiction, but this is probably the, the thing that's rung true the most for me when I saw it is like watching The Wire, right? Mm -hmm. Classic. Yeah. But there's, you know, Bunny Colvin, the major, eventually colonel, I believe. But, you know, he's a character that really exemplifies this to me, right? He's, he's talking about, he's espousing good policing, right? And he wants to be able to go to his officers and say, like, who are the mid-level drug dealers? Like, who, who are the people we talk to? And, you know, he, there's this scene where he lays into basically Sergeant Carver, who's a, you know, a drug, drug enforcement officer in his unit and is basically like, you know, you're doing what you know, right? Because you were brought up on stats, right? Mm -hmm. It's not about quality arrests. It's about, we got to make the city look good. It's driven by politics, yep. right? It's driven by the system. There's like all of these things, right? And, you know... And you like Carver in this case is basically doing what he was taught to do and he's doing what he was taught to do very well. Like mm -hmm. he's good at his job, but he's bad at the job of being a police because the system doesn't reward the job of being like a police. It rewards the job of, of like pushing stats. Mm. Right. And I think, I mean, I think that's what you're saying, right? Noel? like, it's like, yeah. you know, you know, there are there are the people out there who you think are like oh these are these are the bad cops right but it's it's also like well this is what they were taught to do right by a system that rewarded and incentivized aspects of this behavior right and and a community that did well oh sorry a community that did as well right in some respects so yeah. um i mean you know this is all this is all on some level conjecture right i i haven't worked in the police force in any police force but. Yeah. I mean, for me, I'm like the, the way that I think about it is I think there used to be an attitude and this might still exist, um, in some realms that, a badge. So by nature of being a police officer, that that inherently meant something about your authority, your mm -hmm. honor, your, you know, something about like your value in society. Right. And like like anything that's it's it's a symbol right? right and one that um what we've seen has failed uh, you know many many yeah. communities many many people and so there's nothing inherent about like the badge being equivalent with your um your ability to do good right and i think that people are still people people are still people and the idea of that system or that um i guess the the association with like the badge being a symbol for good right like the white hat like if you're a police officer your word is golden you're always honest you're always 
honorable. Um, the heartbreak is not only is that not inherently true, like across the board, <laughs> but it can even be, it can become a symbol and a reflection of some of the worst parts of like power, systemic racism, yeah. you know, um, corruption. Yeah. And that sort of dismantling, I think, has really, really caused this sort of catas like this shift of the pendulum. Whereas I think there was a time when, you know, if you called a police officer to the stand, the jury was like, of course, this person is honest. Paragon of, of virtue. Right, exactly. And now we're seeing the pendulum swing the other way. Um, and those, neither of those extremes are mm -hmm. true of all all you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so that, I think that's a difficult thing to try to grapple with because, you know, uh, the other day I was, I was in a bar with my trivia team. <laughs> not <laughs> We're glad that's back. Yeah. For the record, like, yeah. Aside, oh, yeah. So, so great. Again. And, um, someone I, you know, we were like, someone approached our table and was like introducing themselves and they asked me what I did. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm a prosecutor. And this person said, this person I hadn't met before said, oh, well, fuck the police. And, you know, I hope that you, I hope that you understand, like, the horrible things that, you know, your office is capable of. Something, like, really. Well, of course you understand. This, like, you live inside of it. This total stranger. And I was like, what? What? So you made some assumptions yeah, about it's me. like, whoa. Like, wow. Wow. Um. You know, and that was really, like, really, sh really that's, shocking to me. That's just yeah. someone scraping the bottom of the barrel for some lines at a bar. Yeah, it was just like, whoa, like, wow, that's that's a lot. Um, but, you know, it's like, at the same time, the reason, I mean, I don't know this person, but I'm just going to assume the reason that they felt compelled to say that to a stranger um, is that they are, I think, so horrified mm -hmm. by the examples of the worst things that can happen with the level of power that comes from either being a police officer or being a prosecutor. Right. Right. That's what that's about. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an appropriate reaction to the worst parts, right? Like, yeah, you know, there's no defending um, the, the horrors of the worst parts of that type of power. Um, and also it's unfair to say that that is true of every person, you know, in right. law enforcement. Yeah. Um, and so, sorry, I hope, I hope that this is, I'm like, well, you know. I like want to be, you know, that's the thing that's hard. It's like, I want to be thoughtful and I want to be, um, fair when talking about, um, my relationship with the police and my views on the police. Um, and it's, it's difficult to do that because you, I, I kind of feel like I'm like giving these wishy-washy answers and I don't mean it to be that way. It's just, it's it's multifaceted yeah, yeah. absolutely well yeah. abby if you want to get a little bit more specific this is a per amazing segue <laughs> into a question that's been like going around my mind lately and when you look at the law the law is written in a way that presupposes that cops police officers mm -hmm. are in fact acting in good faith yeah. and are acting by the, you know, the by way the, the law says they should. Sure, yeah, honoring constitutional rights, yeah. you know. I mean, yeah. if, if I may, uh, you know, give you a little display of my knowledge of 
constitutional matters. Sure. I really love the way Noel's, you're perched on Noel's your chair right now. Flex. <laughs> it's got pose, yeah. it's got intro. I'm ready. So United States Civil Code, Title 18, Chapter 111. Whoa. Is this okay. actually real? This is real. Okay. I was looking into this oh, okay. last night. So it stipulates that anyone who forcibly opposes, intimidates, impedes, or prevents a federal worker, federal employee, federal agent from performing their duties um, is liable to up to, I think, $1,000 in fines and up to a year of prison. And if there is physical contact between this perpetrator and the victim, who would be the federal officer, the time in prison goes from one year to eight years. So essentially... What this means, if you're out there in the world doing something, you see a federal officer doing something that you think is wrong or that hurts you unjustly, and you try to stop them from doing that, if you touch them, you can go to prison for eight years. And I realize this is a necessary law because you want the agents of the state to be able to perpetrate the... the the goal of the state, you know, but at the same time, it, it sets up this imbalance where power is not necessarily just and where power is not necessarily being used for good. And that, you know, that it's kind of the same thing as the, the fact that the crime of resisting arrest exists, mm. you know. Yeah, well, I'll tell you straight off the bat, I'm unfamiliar with this federal <laughs> section, uh, but I am familiar with, at least at the state level, the crime of resisting arrest or violence upon a peace officer. And the the idea behind these laws is that it's to prevent citizens from um, essentially interfering with a police officer who is acting in their lawful um duties within the powers that they are allowed to perform as a yeah. police officer. Uh, but I'm not familiar with uh, this federal rule. Uh, but I will say, like a lot of times, the examples that we'll see for these types of cases is, um, let's say there's someone who's being placed under arrest. If the arrest is lawful, a random citizen can't come up and, you know, basically interfere. start interfere with <laughs> what's happening. Mm -hmm. But what's required of that crime is you have to prove that the officer is acting lawfully. So the officer can't be overstepping what authority that person is entitled to as an officer of the law. So if it's an illegal arrest, if it is an unlawful action, if they're overstepping their bounds, that's a defense to that crime. Right. Yeah, man. Yeah. See, this is uh, this is why I love doing this show. I just I'm learning so much right now. I'm, I'm gonna have to cogitate on this for like weeks afterward. I feel like to understand what's even. I mean, this is this is the this is like the fundamental paradox to me of policing, right? Like you have to you have to do everything. Yeah. Right. You have to understand the law, yeah. presumably. Right. right? Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Right, but then you also have to actually act in a way that is. Like, uh, you have to make the decisions and act in a way that is, like, codified in that yeah. law. And, While keeping uh, yourself safe. Right. 
Well, and yeah. and we as a society, I mean, what we understand has has obviously evolved over time. So, for example, with like mental health. So before, you know, police officers, I don't think we're given very much training about how to respond to someone who's actually having a mental health crisis. Um, and perhaps at first blush, that person may look like they are, and they could very well be, you know, potentially violent. They're maybe not, you know, um, not engaging with reality because mm -hmm. of a mental health episode, or perhaps there's drugs on board. And before, I don't think officers had a lot of training. And I think we as a society really weren't educated about um, mental health in the way that we are now. Yeah. But now, in addition to like going to the academy and, um, you know, all the training that comes with becoming a police officer, now they're also um, given additional training about how to respond and diffuse a situation where you have a subject who is having that kind of crisis. Mm -hmm. And so that's like an additional layer of responsibility on top of their job. And it's good, right? Like we want them to have that knowledge, but it is like an additional, yeah. an additional thing that is expected of them. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, when you're, I just can't imagine how, um, how difficult it must be to have to make these sort of snap decisions or snap judgments when yeah. you are just rolling up on a scene and coming into contact with, you know, whoever. Um, and that's the hard part of it, case. right? Yeah. A domestic or a domestic violence case where emotions are really high. Someone might have access to a weapon. You know, you might have a victim who is actually like physically restraining you from doing your investigation because they don't want their abusive partner to be arrested. Um, and again, those are the types of things it's, um, that, uh, I just, again, I would, <laughs> I would not want to be a police officer. I think it's an incredibly difficult job. And I also recognize though, that if you sign up for that, there is an additional higher level of responsibility yeah. that is expected of you, that that is part of your role too, yeah. you know, and you're signing up for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, I'm yeah. sure. But I <laughs> yeah. wanted to turn I wanted to turn things uh, a little bit more personal. So, um, before before I open up a, to a total can of worms about the, the arc of your career, <laughs> oh sure, <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask, like, has there been a particular case that you've worked on, or it doesn't even have to be in uh, in your work, but just something that you've worked on that you are like the most proud of is there a standout moment for you where you were like i achieved the goals that i set out to and this is like a significant stepping stone in my justice <laughs> yeah right uh yes um i think that the case that i think about i really don't it's not a point of pride for me because of anything that i did in particular but because of the victim who i got to know and um, who i'm still in touch with today who just really like ins inspired me so much. Yeah. I think, you know, when you work in domestic violence cases, you just kind of become used to um, the reality that victims don't necessarily want to talk to you, don't want to cooperate with you, are sometimes antagonistic because um, for a variety of reasons, but, um, you know, sometimes you feel like you're like working against the grain, right? To try to help someone who actively does yeah. not want your help and is telling you so. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> this victim, um, that I'm thinking of in particular, um, and I'll just use her first name, Isabel. Uh, 
I met her because she was involved in a domestic violence incident where her husband at the time repeatedly stabbed her in front of all three of their children. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she survived. And I she, mean, step one, holy shit. Yeah. Amazing, but also Crazy. holy shit. Crazy. She survived. Her, She got her kids out of the house. And I kind of expected to meet someone who was just like absolutely broken. And, you know, I, I thought that worst case scenario, she would tell me, you know, I don't want your help. I don't want him prosecuted. I love him. You know, all these mm-hmm. things that you kind of learn come with the cycle of violence. Um, or at best, she would be this completely broken person. Right? Mm-hmm. Like those were the, that was like kind of like the range that I was expecting. The repeated stabbing will really do a number on you. Yeah. I feel. <laughs> yeah. And it was incredible because she had been the victim of abuse for so long, basically for the entirety of her marriage. Um, but he had never harmed her in front of their children. And for whatever reason, that in her mind was like the dividing line. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that it wasn't that he nearly killed her, but the fact that he did so in the presence of their children, that for her was like, I'm done. And so when I met her, she was just so incredibly strong. Like she was like, no, I'm leaving him. I'm getting my kids into a shelter. We are getting out of here. We are going to create a new lives for ourselves. Like I choose myself and my children over him. And she was so strong and she, we did a hearing where she was like subjected to like hours and hours of cross-examination and she never wavered. She was just this, she was so calm in describing like the like decades of abuse that she had lived through. Wow. And she was just this, it was, it was really incredible because she was so different than what I was expecting. And afterwards i when i would talk to her about it i was like i'm just i'm so in awe of you like i i hope that you know like how strong you are how incredible you are and she was just this like humble person and she the thing for her was it was just her kids like that was (laughs) the thing for her that um really made the difference she was like i just i can't continue to live this way if i'm going to be a model for my children yeah especially my daughters you know, and to have, to be able to like have that kind of contact with, you know, someone, first of all, who's just like survived a horrifying event, but then to also just see her, I mean, she got herself into a shelter with her kids. She and her kids got into therapy. She ended up getting a new job. They relocated. Um, she testified wow. against her husband, soon to be ex-husband. Um, at all these hearings, she never wavered. She's been promoted a million times. Now she is Go Isabel. Like, yeah, she's amazing. What she, a boss. she is such a boss. And she does. <laughs> she was so grateful for all the services that she got for um, like counseling and housing and all of that, that she now does like motivational speaking for other oh victims of domestic God. violence. Like, 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 ama- like just like the beacon. most like amazing person. Yeah. Wow. You know, and if you saw her walking down the street, like she's just like you or me, like she's, you know, I, I never would have met her, but for this case, you know, unfortunately that brought us together. And I mean, I would just tell her all the time, like you're, 
I mean, I'm, I'm so lucky to meet you and it's under the worst circumstances mm. imaginable. And, uh, she's, she and I are still in touch with each other. And, um, for me, that's the case I always think of because she is just so incredible. She changed her life. She did. Yeah. Wow, and yeah. like what an example of someone who's just like at the, just like the worst place that you can imagine a person could be and just, just pulled herself up, pulled her kids up yeah. and like never looked back. Just incredible strength. Yeah. Personal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, this reminds me of, uh, I guess another zoom event that this one happened in Mexico. I don't know precisely when, you know, what the past two years are just squeezed into a single day, pretty <laughs> yeah. much in our memories. But there was this one case, um, junior high, high school teacher was teaching her students about something. I don't know what her subject was, but what we as the audience all of mexico sees is this recording where you're looking at a class she's exposing some subject and all of a sudden you hear this dude in the background of the zoom call say like oh you motherfucking blah 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 you hear some hits and then the 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 teacher of the class says like oh my husband I'm giving class, they heard, and she breaks down in tears after seeing like, you know, oh like all of my students realize that you abuse me. Yeah. Um, and then you hear the, you know, the husband cursing and God cursing at the air. And I mean, it's like a hard breaking recording to hear. And then you, you see the, the students has like, oh, miss, are you okay? What's going on? Should I call the police, et cetera, et cetera. But what really surprised me or was a sort of revelation from looking at this recording is that from the way, like the first thing she says is, oh, husband, they heard. Mm -hmm. Like they, they know yeah. what you did. Right. I got the sense of this realization that's like, she knows that what her husband does to her routinely is profoundly wrong. Yeah. But she is in his, he, she's on his team. She believes in him. She loves him. Right. And so we'll try to protect him. Right. From the exposure. From the exposure. And yeah. now she's heartbroken, not because she's being hit, but because now there's no turning back because a bunch of people just heard right. that he's an abuser. He's a, fucking pig yeah and that's what breaks her heart and that was such a like profound like moment for me to see okay like so often and this is a lot of like people who are for some reason people who have dedicated their their, their time online to antagonize feminism <laughs> you know they, they they talk about like oh well uh, why did you not like go to the law why did you yeah. not why didn't you leave right exactly why didn't you leave yeah it's not yeah. that easy when you're in so like when you are entangled with someone when sure. your life has depended for a long time on your relationship with someone going well 
Yeah. It's going to be a very high threshold for you to it's hard to walk. want to see them right. in prison. You yeah, know, that's absolutely. a big. So, I mean, I've, I'm sure you've seen yeah. this type of behavior or this phenomenon time and time again in your work. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the, the profound shame of being a victim of domestic violence, having that the act of domestic violence exposed to people beyond yourself and the person who is abusing you. I mean, like, I think that we can all maybe relate to, you know, being in a public place and seeing a couple like in an argument, you know, not violent, but just like, Most uncomfortable thing Oh ever. my God. Oh my right. God. You're like, how do I yeah. get out of here? Like, yeah. this, like, you know, like, Oh my gosh, know. God forbid you're in a car with friends who are like having, you know, oh, like no. squabbling at each That's, other. It's yeah. so uncomfortable. So imagine the magnitude of, you know, it's not, it's not like a, a squabble, right? It's, you know, there is violence happening within your relationship and the just profound shame from that. Like the shame in itself, I think when people begin to empathize with that, you, it's so easy to understand why, how difficult it would be to report it or to leave. And then on top of that, to add additional factors like, Maybe you have children together, or maybe you're financially dependent on one another, or maybe there are immigration consequences, or you know, maybe you don't have a support system. I mean, there are yeah. so many reasons why people can't leave. Um, but definitely, I think like the shame also of just having it exposed, like such a private part of your intimate relationship exposed to other people, like yeah. at your workplace or you know, to your friends or to the pol- you know to the police i mean it's i was reading um, an art- an article earlier this week that said on average it takes a domestic violence victim up to 7 attempts to leave on average before they are successful wow, and it Lord. is the time that they are leaving that relationship that is in fact the most dangerous yeah i believe that you know and so you know for these people who are like well if he's if it's really that bad like why don't you leave i just think that that that's that such easy. a um, narrow view of what's actually happening yeah. yeah yeah wow okay so we are running really long on time so before before we wrap things up i want to get i want to get a little bit of you know you are a still a young professional like working in working in the government <laughs> <laughs> um What's your what's your arc? Where are you headed next? Oh, like, God. I mean, obviously you're going to continue doing the work that you're doing, but like, what are your goals and like, where do you where do you want to take your work and oh my gosh, where you see yourself? Yeah, I mean that's the that's, that's the good big, existential. Yeah, that's the big question, right? Well, I think when I started, and again, this is like a throwback to like some of the blind arrogance that I felt when I was like, this is what I want to do, and I'm going to do it forever. Uh, <laughs> I'm eight years in now, and uh, you know. There's, like anything, there's no way to know what it's like until you're in it. And mm-hmm. uh, thankfully, I think I've been learning how to kind of manage the um, the difficult parts of the job. But I will say, in just kind of looking around, uh, there's a lot of burnout in my unit in particular. And can't imagine why. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think there may be a time when I want to go to a different unit or maybe, um, you know, work in a different area of criminal law. 
Um, but for now, I think I want to continue doing what I'm doing for as long as I have the energy and like the, that I'm not so jaded, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to get to a point where I just think everything is terrible and everyone's the worst. I really (laughs) don't want to be that like jaded government employee. Who's like, ah, humanity. Um, We deserve what's coming. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think as long as I can still feel like the high highs of our, of my job, which I'm like that are incredible. Um, I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I think eventually it would be really rewarding to teach maybe. Um, or to, my language there. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be incredible, but who knows? I think f- for now, I still really love what I'm doing, which is pretty lucky. And I'm going to keep going for as long as I can. Um, but I'm also going to give myself permission to, you know, if there may come a time where I want to do something different. And before when I was younger, I didn't think that that would ever happen, but you know, you yeah. never know. Well, you ever end up running for uh, San Diego DA or anything? Oh, God. Let us know. We'll work to talk for you. <laughs> I'd be the worst politician of all time. <laughs> Too many long, rambling responses, as you could tell from this episode. <laughs> I think that makes a great politician, personally. Oh, God. People want some personal relation. You know? I want to know what you think. So. I don't know. I mean, as long as your teacher skills go... I'm sure Andrew and I and our audience have learned a lot about the law today and yeah. about domestic Thanks. abuse, about how these horrible corners of society function wow. and, and, and what light shines on these corners. Well, yeah. thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Abby, thanks so much for coming. Do you want to shout out anything where people can find you? Instagram, Facebook, social media? Oh, gosh. I, you don't I, have to. I am a weirdo who has no social media. I know. I'm You're a, in good company. I'm a hermit Respect. that way. Yeah. I'm a hermit that yeah, way. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you want to find Abby, you can find her on the San Diego District Attorney page sure. website, presumably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah probably. Somewhere follow, in there. Follow her work in the court court papers. Oh, How do we... here's what I'll say is if you get summoned for jury duty, okay, here we go. you should absolutely go. I really think mm-hmm. that it is a true part of our democracy and every person who is able should serve on a criminal jury at least once in their lifetime. It will, you know, if you have criticism of the system, if you have praise for the system, no matter what, you should be part of it. Go to jury duty. I know it's annoying, but you should go. It's important civic duty. That's a great note on which to end it. (laughs) Thanks, Abby. Thank you. Thank you so much. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.